The Shakespeare guy, huh? Oh, we, we should get the word out about him. necessarily better a podcast where we talk about books and their many many adaptations across genres and mediums i'm michaela and i'm roxanne we work for the community library network and we're excited to bring you our first shakespeare episode today we're talking one tragedy one comedy we'll do the comedy first to keep things light and then you know just end on a tragic note sounds good to me Sounds good to me. Okay. We are talking about Shakespeare this month because it is April, which is National Poetry Month. If you caught our last episode, you'll know that National Poetry Month started in 1996, and it's basically just a way to recognize the art form and bring a little more awareness of it. So one of the reasons we're talking about Shakespeare during National Poetry Month is that he famously writes uh, not only just actual poems, very famously sonnets. And again, if you caught our last episode, he writes mostly in iambic pentameter, stressed and unstressed syllables in a pattern and each line has five sets of those so ten syllables all together so does it sound like da 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 yeah like the beating of your heart same rhythm and he rarely in his plays strays from that there are a couple times he uses other you know other schemes other patterns but mostly it's iambic pentameter he's very famous for it hmm. the first one we'll talk about again it's a comedy we're going to talk about much ado about nothing which is possibly my favorite shakespeare play really yeah I know that's probably not the one everyone would choose. I think it's just the one that I'm most familiar with. And so I just, it's got kind of a special little place in my heart. See, I'm more of a, a Twelfth Night girl myself. Mm, okay, okay. More, but, of a, more of an Amanda Bynes fan? Yes. <laughs> do an entire podcast about her. I kind of figured. But yeah, that. but in general, I, I'm old enough that I lived before the time of the Amanda Bynes movie, She's the Man, <laughs> which is a classic. But yes, I love I love Twelfth Night because we studied it in school. Okay, so the familiarity, I think, is important with Shakespeare. Yes, yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. But I, I have to say the idea of farces annoy me. Hmm. I, I don't like, which what doesn't make any sense because I like Twelfth Night, which is the entire point. But mm-hmm. in general, I don't like a farce. And a farce is usually mistaken identities and right. misunderstandings. So do you like Much Ado About Nothing? It's fine. I disagree. <laughs> okay. I mean, I don't dislike it. Generally with my Shakespeare, I, I prefer other ones. Well, I'll give you a little bit of a rundown. Much yeah. Ado About Nothing. Hey, let's play a game called Change My Mind. Okay. Tell me why I should love this. <clears throat> Why you should love this. Well, this isn't why you should love this, but this but is I'm, the background. I'm open to, to why you should to why I should appreciate this play more. Sure. This play was written in about 1598, 1599, right around there. It's a, again, a comedy and a comedy of errors specifically. How would you define a comedy of errors? A comedy of errors is a mistake has been made intentionally or unintentionally that leads to hilarity and eventually turns out well for people involved. The movie that immediately springs to mind is like a Meet the Parents. Yeah, comedy where, of errors. Like, what else could go wrong? Exactly. I it's, think I sort of hate comedy of errors hmm. because they could usually be solved by better communication. 
And I think that's what bugs me. And 100% that's true. So I'll use a really mainstream reference. So like in Friends, the show Friends. I've seen Friends. <laughs> uh, a lot of the conflicts that they have could be solved by them simply talking to each other and not jumping to the worst conclusion. Yes. Okay. See, I like that because you know that as soon as someone like figures out the wrong thing, that everything is going to work out fine. Mm-hmm. For me, it's a comfort thing because it, like, you know, in a comedy of errors, a it's a comedy. Things are going to turn out all right for the what people is a comedy? Yeah. So you know, it's going to turn out all right for everybody. That miscommunication to me is funny until they figure out like what's going on okay so for me it stresses me out oh okay see for me it's the opposite because i know exactly i think it's the anxiety brain i know exactly like how it's going to end up so i don't have to worry for anybody because i know they're going to be okay okay see for me it stresses me out because i'm like you're putting yourself through all of this when you could just straighten it out right now but then you don't have two more hours of a play to do it could be how i enjoy the show the office but it really stresses some people out my mom because of awkward situations yeah so it does stress me out it stresses you out it does but i love it anyway that one I can kind of handle. Mm-hmm. Again, because it's a comedy, so you know most things are going to end up okay. Hmm. I think the key is that things need to be funny or I can't handle them. <laughs> <laughs> I don't deal with emotion well. Yeah, but I'm a robot who doesn't cry during movies. That's also true. Except for Romeo and Juliet, but we'll talk about that later. Okay. So Much Ado About Nothing is a comedy of errors. So some soldiers return to Messina and young love is in the air. They're coming to the house of Leonardo and his daughter, Hero, and his niece, Beatrice, also lives there. Uh, The soldiers include the prince of Messina, his bastard brother, and two soldiers in particular, Claudio and Benedict. A romance between Hero and Claudio is upended by the prince's half-brother, and a mischievous plot to set up frenemies, Beatrice and Benedict, is also in place and leads to full-fledged love. So the comedy of errors is that their their friends, Beatrice and Benedict, are like old enemies, right? They, they're friends with each other, but they're also like, hmm, I would never marry you. Both of them. For like their entire life. Basically, they're insufferable flirts. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Uh, And their friends, after finding love themselves, have decided to trick them into falling in love with each other. And it works extremely well. So that's part of the comedy of errors. Now there is a little element of tragedy to this as well in that the the bastard prince sets up Hero to be kind of a wanton and makes Claudio not want to marry her despite the fact that she is very chaste and very modest. Basically he sets it up to look like she was unfaithful to him, right? Right. Which leads to a lot of crying in the streets. And Why does he do that? <laughs> um, because he's a bastard. <laughs> no, I'm not joking. This is this is a thing in Shakespeare. Like, oh, okay, this is a trope. This is a Shakespeare trope. Okay. So and and also just kind of a trope of the times that he lived in. So bastards were anyone you know born out of wedlock. Illegitimate. Illegitimate kids. Illegitimate kids were thought to have worse blood than your full-born children, and that was kind of thought to make them do like to act crazy or to be evil or to do just things that kind of go against their family and against societal norms. Wow, I didn't know about this. Yeah. That's interesting. Again, mom, this is what an English degree does. (laughs) Yeah. So, so bastards are actually, I'm not just saying it a whole That's actually the term. It's actually the term that is used when you're, when you're analyzing Shakespeare and analyzing the characters. So the bastard brother 
does these actions because he's an illegitimate guy born under like he a, can't help it yeah he can't help it he he can't be anything other than a bad person anyway he sets them up to be unhappy comedy of because errors. hurt people hurt people exactly you know all is gonna end well because it's a comedy and not a tragedy, and you know that going into it. Beatrice tells Benedict he has to challenge Claudio because he's wounded her cousin's honor, which he does because he's in love with her now and he's admitting it. And then the whole thing is kind of solved. They get married. The other couple gets married. Everyone ends up happy. Isn't there a, a they dance at the end, usually? Yes. Oh my gosh. In the Kenneth Branagh version of this movie, like, there's this whole, like, maze of hedges and, like, everyone's just dancing, like, through this huge maze of hedges. It's ridiculous. That's the opposite of the end of The Shining. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I have not seen it because I'm afraid of horror movies, but I, I think... We're going a- to do The Shining episode with a different host. <laughs> yes. I think there's a maze and I think it ends badly. It does. It does. <laughs> It's also one of my favorite Shakespeare's because it's it's very witty. There's a lot of fun banter and a lot of puns, which Roxanne absolutely hates. Nope, mm-hmm. don't like the puns. Um, which might be another reason why she doesn't like this play as much as she should. Mm, okay, Shakespeare puns, I mean, I can, <laughs> I can deal. Okay, okay. Even the title of this one is a pun, so it's much oh, okay. yeah. So it's much ado about nothing, which in older English sounded like noting, which to us doesn't mean anything, but noting uh, meant like gossip or rumors. Oh, yeah. So it's, you're making a big fuss about nothing. I learned something today. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That's great. Yeah. So even the title is a pun. There are tons and tons and tons, and I mean tons. Like every line in this play is an innuendo. Everything Beatrice and Benedict, body humor. Body humor and. Body, we A W. Yeah, body, body, body. humor. Um, but also body humor. Everything in this is an innuendo. The one I can think of off the top of my head is she speaks poniards and every word stabs. I'll let you figure out what that means for yourself. There's lots of phallic imagery and lots of knives and lots of stabbing. And even their like repartee is very like invasive. I don't want to get super like into this, but basically this entire play is one big sex joke. (laughs) I know. Being a, so we talk about you being an English major. As Mm -hmm. a history major, people were not better or more classy in the past. No, and anyone who thinks Shakespeare was a classy guy no, is dead no. wrong. In the spirit of full confession, several years ago I was on the board of a local theater. <laughs> uh, right. Mm-hmm. Um, but just a local theater where we did, you know, small productions. And mm-hmm. I got it in my head one year that we needed to do an all-teen production of Much Ado About Nothing. And I loved it. It was some of the most fun I've ever had working on a show. Uh-huh. Because it was so fun to watch teenagers figure out Shakespeare. Hmm, teens, let's like parse out this line of Shakespeare and figure out why we're, why we're saying these weird things. But I think that like as you go through it, because Shakespeare's weird, right? Like we don't use these these idioms anymore. There's a lot of... Cool- it's almost like Yoda talk. Uh, yeah. The way that the sentences are composed. Yeah. It, it's very backwards. The syntax is weird. There's colloquialisms that, like, we have no idea what they mean. So I think that in performing that and sort of getting a feel for those characters, you can kind of be like, hmm, I totally understand what this guy was talking about now. I think it rewires your brain a little bit. A little studying bit. Shakespeare. Yeah, it's fun. Did you watch one of the movie versions? I did. I watched the 2013 one by Joss Whedon. Yeah. Uh, it's in black and white. It was filmed at his house or by his pool. Yeah. And it's set in current day. It's fun. It's good. It takes place at like a big dinner party, basically. Yeah. Or like a weekend party. 
because they still use the original language, but it's set modern day. And my husband was like, this only works because it's rich people being drunk and like play acting. But that's what the play is. But that's what the play is. But that's the only reason that it really works for like modern day using that language Mm. is because it's just rich people like having a throwaway sort of party weekend. Mm -hmm. But I I think the aesthetic of it is really beautiful. It is. It's gorgeous. And the black and white isn't, do you feel like it's pretentious? Maybe a little bit. Maybe a little bit pretentious. And sort of like the cast of it also feels a little pretentious to me because it's all of like Joss Whedon's friends who like some of them are... Well, and apparently Joss Whedon, who's not having the best time right now, apparently did play favorites a lot. Uh, Yes. So it's his kind of like in crowd of actors in this this film. Some of them are like actual famous and some of them Mm -hmm. are just kind of like B-movie famous. Um, Yeah, I don't think the casting was the best casting ever ever. It, it didn't blow me away. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think that everybody's, I think they understand the, the like rhythm of Shakespeare really well. Mm-hmm. I think that that is really important when you're doing Shakespeare. So as somebody who's more familiar with Shakespeare mm-hmm. producing than I am, is it obvious to you when actors are just saying the words and they don't know what they're actually saying? Yeah. And how often does that happen? Um, we'll talk about it in about 10 minutes, in fact. Oh, okay. Okay. Yes. It's really obvious, especially when you don't understand the rhythm of what you're saying. Like, that's almost more important than understanding the actual words. The wrong emphasis is on the wrong syllable. Yes. That's what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. So I think that they have a really good understanding of the language. I think that they have a really good understanding of the underlying wit. I think they play off a lot of the innuendos in a way where they're like wink wink this is innuendo and it works whereas it could be very easy to say Shakespeare line and not realize that you're making a, a body joke yes exactly okay okay so have you seen the 2013 version have you seen the 1993 version who is in it? It's got it's got like big name cast. Okay. They might not have been big name at the time, but they're all big hit the big time since then. It's got Kenneth Branagh, Emma Thompson, Denzel Washington, Keanu Reeves, Richard Bryan. Keanu Reeves. Keanu Reeves. Yes. He's the best in it. Who is he? He's the bastard brother. Oh. And he's so good. How does he play evil? Well, I love. Well, okay. He doesn't play well because he's Keanu Reeves. Oh. <laughs> so does he play anything well? That's questionable. Whoa. <laughs> However, he plays it in a way that I it just thrills me. He's just like fun. Also, Michael Keaton, Robert Sean Leonard, Imelda Staunton, and Kate Beckinsale. So there's Dang. I, right? It is a huge cast. I will just say really, really fast. It has the best scene of both of them. Both of those scenes where they're trying to like tell Benedict and Beatrice that the other person likes them, but like be secretive about it. That is so high school. It's so high school, but it's so funny in both movies. It gets played off really well, especially the one where they're trying to convince Benedict. So tell me a little bit more about that scene. So so it's a scene where the staging is really important. The group, the his friends are trying to convince him that Beatrice loves him. They're trying to pretend like they don't know he's there. And he's trying to pretend like he's not there. But like, they can all clearly see each other. Is it sort of ignore the man behind the curtain? Yes. Okay. It's exactly ignore the man behind the curtain. So okay. the, the Joss Whedon one is great because they're standing by these open windows. There's a huge lawn with like nothing on it. And he's like trying to hide himself between like behind little tiny bushes. <laughs> and they keep like almost turning to the window and then being like oh if we turn to the window we'll see him and then like quickly turning away it's really funny oh so it's like when you're at the grocery store in your hometown and you see oh. somebody uh from like a past life and mm-hmm. you don't want to have small talks so you just pretend you don't see them yes got it so 
the the Joss Whedon one is really funny. The Kenneth Branagh one is just hilarious because he finds out and immediately, as soon as they like walk away, he's like, Beatrice loves me. And he's just like frolicking through the meadow and he's like swinging on a swing and there's like an overlay of like his joyous face. It's so funny. That sounds amazing. It's, yeah. My husband and I often refer to him in certain movies as Smokey Branagh because he's very like, his skin is bronzed and his hair is like windswept and his shirt's unbuttoned like halfway down his chest. Like in Hamlet too. Yeah. Um, but that's just our, our nickname for when he's trying to be like sultry Kenneth Branagh. We Good for also him. think that about Keanu Reeves in that movie. Aww. He's also being very smoky. Oh, Keanu. So that's that's why I love the older one. For the simple fact that everyone is being like very, very smoky, mm. but also heavily enjoying frivolity. There's also a, a song in both of these that's in the play that they do in both versions. In the in the Kenneth Branagh one, they're just singing it like out on some meadow. In the Joss Whedon one, it's actually just like playing in the background. Mm. And you kind of don't notice that it's that. Until, I was like, this is a song that I've heard before. Why do I know this song? And then I was like, oh, it's just the Shakespeare lyrics like put into an actual song form. Let's, uh, let's shift gears here and talk about something. We're going to bring it down. Way down. So and we are going from a comedy to a tragedy. Yeah. Yes. So I did my book report on <laughs> Romeo and Juliet. So Romeo and Juliet is the most famous love story in the world. Mm. <laughs> oh, okay. What's more famous? You know what? I, let's not get into it right no, now. No, no. I'm curious. What's more famous? You're probably right. I just feel like actual love You're, you're just being were, contrary? Yeah, basically. <laughs> okay. Actual love stories where people turn out fine, and I think that that's better, but whatever. Uh, like the notebook? Like, let's talk about this. Um, no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Fall in love, be in love, and just that's the end of it. Don't kill yourselves. It's a life lesson. Uh, also, so, don't trust friars. <laughs> Romeo and Juliet is one of the most famous love stories ever. Thank you. Essentially two warring factions and basically their kids fall in love. Mm -hmm. So um, Shakespeare did not invent this story, but he made it his own. So this is an ancient story. Actually, the Montagues and the Capulets were existing names. Shakespeare took his idea for this play directly, though, from a 1562 poem by, by a poet named Arthur Brooke called The Tragical History of Romeus and Juliet. Oh. So he would if he tried to turn that in in high school. Yeah, his plagiarism check would be like, nope. Yeah, no way. I'll give you a quick synopsis. Most people know the story. I'll give you a few details about it. I don't. What happens? Oh, mm-hmm. well, the epitome of the star-crossed lover's tale, Romeo Montague and Juliet Capulet, are from enemy families in the city of Verona, Italy during the Renaissance. So that would have been like the 1400s, early 1500s. Mm-hmm. Juliet is only 13 years old. There's a lot of references to that she has not yet turned 14. I think she's like two weeks away from her yep. birthday. Pretty close. They never say Romeo's age. It's implied that he's older. He's a little bit older. His maturity level I'd say is like that of a late teen Mm -hmm. to be safe yeah I'd probably say he's maybe 16 or 17 but it was published in either 1597 or 1599 depending on who you ask and as this is pretty well trod territory I'll keep the summary brief so the Montagues and Capulets are warring families when Romeo and Juliet their children meet at a party and fall in love at first sight they don't realize that they've just fallen in love with their sworn enemies they're married in secret the very next day 
but Romeo is soon banished from Verona because he kills Juliet's cousin Tybalt. The Prince of Cats. The Prince of Cats in revenge for the death of his best friend Mercutio. So Tybalt wanted to fight Romeo. Romeo just married his cousin, so is trying to be a peacekeeper. Mercutio, his best friend, steps in, gets in fight Tybalt. Kills Mercutio. In revenge, uh, Romeo kills Tybalt. He gets banished from the city. And Julia is going to be forced to marry this aristocrat named Paris in about three days. To, in order to avoid this fate, Juliet takes a poison that makes it look like she is dead. But she's just sleeping. <laughs> and the idea is that she is going to awake in 42 hours, at which point the friar who married her and Romeo. Devious friar, man. <laughs> they're going to come and sort of rescue her so that she can run away with Romeo. And basically they're just going to kind of hide out until everything blows over, right? Yeah. And why does the, what is the friar's motivation? For no, he does have a motivation. No, I know. That's why I'm asking. Oh, okay. what, what no, is his, his involvement in this? So he has good intentions. Mm. He thinks that by joining together the, this couple that he can end the war between the Montagues and the Capulets. Mm. Does that work out? No, it goes <laughs> real bad. Oh, okay. For everyone, I'm assuming. So uh, this is a tragedy. The problem right. is, is that Romeo is supposed to get word that this is what's going on. It's she's not dead; she's just sleeping. Instead, Balthazar, his servant, messes everything up because before a letter can get to Romeo, who's banished. Balthazar sees Juliet's fake funeral, and he goes and tells Romeo. Romeo runs back to Verona. He sees that Juliet, who's sleeping, thinks she's dead. He kills himself with poison. She wakes up. She sees that he is dead. He, She takes his dagger and stabs herself. Spoiler alert. That, my friends, is a tragedy. Yes. Literally, this is what a tragedy is. And this is the opposite of a comedy of errors. Balthazar seeing this, uh, this funeral and then telling Romeo that she's dead. This is like the exact opposite of what we were just talking about. Because a comedy of errors means that it all has to work out, right? Yes. Yeah. This is just... This is just errors. It's just errors. It's just like deadly errors. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so this is a tale as old as time. But like I said, it wasn't new in Shakespeare's day, and there's been adaptation after adaptation after mm-hmm. it. Because this play has everything. It's sort of like The Princess Bride. It has fighting. It is funny. It's very funny. There's love. At times. There's tragedy. There's drama. Like, I think the poetry in Romeo and Juliet is some of the most beautiful that he's ever written. For sure. For instance, when uh, Romeo and Juliet first meet, they write a sonnet together. Mm-hmm. Michaela maybe you can jog my memory what a sonnet is made up of a sonnet is made up of 14 lines i believe it's an eight line stanza and then a six line stanza and the last two lines generally rhyme typically it's a it's a love poem often um it can be other things but but typically love poems and shakespeare wrote many of them but they write one together do you want to read this with me so that we can they can hear how that would sound with two people writing a sonnet together absolutely Okay, do you want to be Romeo or Juliet? I'd like to be Romeo. All right, Romeo. What they're talking about is pilgrims praying, but they're really talking about kissing, essentially. Yes. <laughs> His lips are pilgrims, I believe. Yeah, I believe so. This right. So, all right, go ahead. If I profane with my unworthiest hand this holy shrine, the gentle sin is this. My lips, two blushing pilgrims, ready stand to smooth that rough touch with a tender kiss. Good pilgrim, you do wrong your hand too much, which mannerly devotion shows in this. For saints have hands that pilgrims' hands do touch, and palm to palm is holy palmer's kiss. 
Have not saints lips and holy palmers too? Ay, pilgrim, lips that they must use in prayer. Oh, then, dear saint, let lips do what hands do. They pray, grant thou, lest faith turn to despair. Saints do not move, though grant for prayer's sake. Then move not, while my prayer's effect I take. So we're going to be famous. But yeah, that followed exactly what you just said. So let's break it down a little bit. Let's break it down. So Romeo's got four lines at the beginning. Okay. And then followed by four lines from Juliet. That's that first stanza of eight lines that go together. Okay. Anyhow, two quatrains that go together. Okay. The next ones are, are a little bit weird. He's got a line, she's got a line, he's got two, she's got one, he's got the last one. However, And does that follow the sonnet? Yeah. It's got six lines all together, and the last two lines do rhyme. So it's, yeah, it's a true sonnet. So saints do not move, though grant for prayer's sake, then move not while my prayer's effect I take. Right. And did the rest of it, were there other rhymes in the rest of it, or do sonnets really only rhyme at the end? Uh, the last two is usually a couplet, and then the other ones rhyme... In different schemes. This one is an A, B, A, B, and then the two-line, the couplet that rhymes, it's got its own internal rhyme scheme. That Shakespeare guy was kind of smart. He, he was deviously smart, I'm going to tell you. Like, that takes a lot of work. Especially to have and... the syllables like they are. Mm-hmm. It, I can't even fathom the amount of work that takes. Did he invent any of this structure, or was this already no. in existence? Shakespeare is the greatest plagiarizer in all of existence, even though we think he's, like... The OG, which I think I said already. Well, speak to that a little bit. I mean, yeah. I've heard I've heard rumors about yeah. Marlowe. So, what people probably argue about this, but what do you think is true, and what's I? And you might not agree with this as a historian, but I kind of think it doesn't. The factual, the facts of the story don't matter as much now as the effect of the story. So, saying that Shakespeare wrote all of these things, and we attribute all of these things to Shakespeare, we put a lot on him. I'd say he's taken on kind of like a mythical form. Sure. And I'm okay with that, even if he didn't write some of the things he said he writes. There is some some uh, insinuation that he's stolen some things from, from Christopher Marlowe. There's also insinuations that kind of like some of those Renaissance painters, he had like apprentices and things mm. like, right, you know? So... Like ghostwriters yeah. today. Yeah, basically. But he took credit for it all. And he's not writing, like, anything new. These stories kind of all existed already. Right. Um, he just wrote them in a really good way that endures. Mm-hmm. No, actually, a historian that doesn't particularly bother me. I okay. see it more as, like, a, a movement. Like, if you're looking at the history of literature yeah. and plays, to me, it's like saying, like, the Victorian era or the ro- the Romantic era, the Realist era, it's the Shakespearean era. Yeah, okay. Is I how I would classify it. Let's go on to some of the adaptations that have been made of Romeo and Juliet. Yet. I'm going to focus on really new ones and specifically movie versions. So mm-hmm. some of the most popular ones were the 1936 version by George Cougar, who is one of my favorite old-timey directors. Okay. Uh, he did what were called women's films. So oh. very, like basically melodramas before we had TVs. Mm-hmm. Like he would have, he probably would have directed like, um, like the OC. Okay. That kind of like primetime drama show. <laughs> okay. But he was, he was really talented. So George Cooker's 1936 version had Norma Shearer and Leslie Howard, and it received four Oscars. If you've seen Gone with the Wind, Leslie Howard plays Ashley. Then, of course, a very famous adaptation is West Side Story. Oh, no. Not my favorite. I thought you were going else <laughs> it's West Side Story from 1961, which is a, a musical. It started as a Broadway musical, and I have a fun story about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad was in high school, middle school, high school in the late 50s, and his teacher told everyone that he was really excited because apparently they're making a musical based on Romeo and Juliet. 
Mm. It takes place in New York City. <laughs> so that was the first time you heard anything about Romeo and Juliet or West Side Story coming out. Um, so that was a really popular stage show where, of course, they have, instead of warring families, they have um, warring gangs. Like street gangs of kids. Yeah. Then one of the most famous adaptations is Franco Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet. Okay, this one is my favorite one. From 1968. I haven't mm-hmm. actually seen it. Oh, I, I hear you, the score is amazing. I think you would really like it. Okay. I, I do think the score is amazing. The actors in it are, like, not actor actors. Like, it's, like, their first time acting. So you can kind of tell they're, like, a little nervous about the camera thing. But I actually... Think and they're real teenagers, they're too, They're real right? teenagers, yeah. They're not, like, 25-year-olds playing yeah. 15-year-olds. I actually think that nervousness works a lot for Juliet. She plays this very, like, giggly... It's Olivia Hussey, right? Yeah, Olivia Hussey. And his... Uh, Leonard Whiting is Romeo. But that nervous energy kind of, like, makes it feel like a true, like, teen movie. Falling in love for the first time. Yeah. A lot of people, I'm sure, are going to not like her giggle in it. She <laughs> giggles a lot, and it's, like, a real, like, little girl's giggle. But like I actually... a tee-hee-hee. Not exactly, but I, you'll you'll have to watch it. Okay. I actually think it's kind of charming, but I just I also just think that that movie is like shot beautifully. It's got this weird like aesthetic, and it's kind of like grainy now because they had to like restore it at some point mm-hmm. or something weird. And it was shot in location film. on location, right? Yeah. So I I happen to think that it's beautiful. I was shown this film in maybe my freshman year of high school when we were talking about Romeo and Juliet, and it like was maybe the first thing in my high school career that I really like latched onto and was like, ooh, this is like cool like literature speaking to me and like touching my life in a way cool real quick before we go on i yeah. do want to tell you that in terms of um, adaptations and giving myth to this story from and juliet that if you go to verona italy which of course is a real city in northern italy i studied abroad in, in florence and i went on a day trip to verona which is one of the most beautiful cities i've ever been to mm-hmm. But the big tourist trap there is you can go to Juliet's house. Can you see the balcony? Mm-hmm. Oh, I love it. It was built in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. So it was like an old villa that belonged to some random family. Today it's like a gift shop. <laughs> of course. But you can go to uh, like the Balcone di Giulietta. Nice. Uh, there is an area where it is very sweet. You, you know, everyone takes markers and like in this hallway mm-hmm. outside, everyone writes sort of like... Your name on a tree, like oh, initials. So cute. somewhere there is me and my early college boyfriend's initials. Oh, that's really cute. <laughs> 2009. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it was a tourist trap, but like no harm, no foul. It didn't cost me yeah. money to go there and it was sweet. Now I'm getting to Romeo and Juliet from 1996, the Baz Luhrmann version, which is my personal favorite. And I'll just go over it briefly, but it stars Claire Danes as Juliet, and she was 17 at the time, and Leonardo DiCaprio was at his hunkiest when he was 21. I mean, his hair. It's the hair. He can he can just it is good. do a hair flip. Oh, it's so good. John Leguizamo. I always John Leguizamo like- is the prince of cats. And also at his peak. In that movie. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, yes. And um, so he plays Tybalt, so Juliet's cousin, and he has just amazing clothing. Yes. His, <laughs> his gun is cool. His goatee is... Anyway, his facial expressions throughout that movie, this like, it's great. worth it just to watch his He's face. really genuinely scary yeah. as Tybalt. He's great. I think he plays, like, the most frightening Tybalt I've ever... I think so, too. Mm-hmm. So the way that this is updated in the Baz Luhrmann movie is that it's set in 
fictional Verona Beach, California, Mm -hmm. in the 90s. (laughs) And it is two warring families. So their business rivals, the sons of each family, are pretty, like, amped up young men who... Mm -hmm. Who have guns and something's going to happen because if you have a gun in the first act, something's going to happen by the third act, and right? And there's a gun in the first act. Yes. There's a gun in like the first like two minutes. Yeah. So of course, well, Shakespeare, would have, they didn't have guns, they had knives. So what is some of the fun things that you see in this movie, like all of their guns have sword names. Romeo has the dagger nine millimeter. Mm-hmm. Another person has a rapier. Just Tybalt has one that's just called like... It's just sword. It's just it? sword. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. This also has an amazing soundtrack, so it's like a tour de force of 90s music. Mm-hmm. You haven't lived until you've heard <laughs> the children's choir singing a cover of When Doves Cry by Prince yeah. during a montage. It's pretty good. Trust on this. <laughs> Some fun facts about it. Paul Reddit shows up in it again. The yeah. man who has clearly sold his soul to live forever. Yeah, because he looks exactly the same as it, what, 20-something years ago? Uh-huh. As he does today. Yes, so he plays Paris, which is, you know, Juliet's intended fiancé. He's very charming in it. Mm-hmm. He's very Paul Rudd. You know what I love? So his, in this, his last name is Paris, and his first name is Dave. <laughs> his name that. is just Dave Paris. <laughs> yeah, I don't love that. <laughs> It's very, um, it's very MTV like, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Well, actually, the movie starts with, um, you know, normally you'd have somebody called the chorus mm-hmm. giving you the intro to the play. Instead, you just see a black screen with like a '90s news report, yeah. just like a like a kind of grainy TV come on, yeah. and then you have a news anchor reading the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, telling us what's going to happen, and then we sort of get these sort of stressful. I don't it's know. It's very like fast-paced, like testosterone-fueled, like gang interaction almost. Like the mm-hmm. first thing is what you're talking it, about. Like tabloid reporting, like yeah. gangs in LA. Yeah, because this is very clearly supposed to be LA, probably Venice Beach. It's yeah, yeah. So it, it beach, yeah. it's trying to look like you know the gang fighting of the '90s. Right. Uh, I love Roger Ebert. Ooh. He hated it. He really hated. He this gave movie. it two stars. Um, but he hated he said, it. <laughs> He said, in one grand but doomed gesture, writer-director Baz Luhrmann has made a film that A, will dismay any lover of Shakespeare, and B, bore anyone lured into the theater by promise of gang wars MTV style. This production was a very bad idea. Oh. (laughs) I love Roger Ebert, but uh, I disagree. He's wrong in this instance. He's just wrong. Clearly. But this is a polarizing movie. It definitely is. People Um, love or hate it, but I think it's aged really well. I do too. I rewatch it as often as I can, honestly. I watched it last week. I might go home and watch it again. Just it's so good. It's really good. And I honestly, I almost couldn't even tell you why it's really good. I just love... It has a lot of heart. It does. And it's just kind of different. Um, mm-hmm. The one thing that I will say, and I alluded to this earlier, is that some of the characters don't know how to do Shakespeare. Okay. So, for example... So, for example, and I love him to death, but Leonardo DiCaprio, he's bad at Shakespeare. Um, okay. He screams a lot of things that probably shouldn't be screamed. Because... <laughs> <laughs> like fire in the theater. Yeah, yeah. No, more like just you can't... You don't get a feel for the language when he's just screaming all of his dialogue. It's just, I have a lot of emotions. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, and there's other characters who do that too. But him and Claire Danes especially, they're both really young in this film. And I don't think they've and had... And sweet together. And sweet together. And I don't think they've had a ton of 
training uh, or a lot of it. I don't think Baz Luhrmann cared a lot about like the the authenticity of the of the like words. I think he cared a lot about like the spectacle of it, which is what I love in a Baz Luhrmann film. And he one hundred percent succeeds at. Yeah, it's got a lot of really cool like the crucifixes and like the yes, so very like nineties. Uh, 1990s Los Angeles culture. Mm-hmm. It's perfect. Yeah. It's a beautiful film. Just some of those people don't totally get Shakespeare. But it's okay because I love the rest of it. Mm-hmm. I particularly love the actor who does Mercutio. Okay, his best friend. Me too. He looks wonderful at the costume party because they meet at a costume party, which is uh, so in the original play, they meet at a masquerade, which is kind of like more you'd just be wearing a mask over your face. You wouldn't Mm -hmm. necessarily be wearing different clothing. Would you be wearing nicer clothing than we would wear to a thing, though? You were wearing your party clothes. Yeah. But when people only had like three dresses. Oh, I think most of these people are rich, though. Wouldn't they have like nice dresses to wear? Okay, they'd have like nine dresses. Okay. There you go. So you, you wear the best of your nine dresses. Yeah. And hopefully it's not the one that people saw you in last season. Yeah. But then you're wearing a mask. So if you think about, like, if you go to Venice, they have their carnival days and then they dress up in sort of fancy clothing and they wear a mask. Very Mardi Gras. Yeah. In fact, this it, whole movie is kind of very Mardi Gras. Yeah, it is. In a weird way. And carnival is basically yeah. Mardi Gras. So basically. that makes sense. It all works. I do really enjoy at the party that that they meet at. So it's thrown by the Capulets and Romeo shows up as a knight and Julia yeah. is an angel. Aww, and Paul Rudd is an astronaut and I love that. I love how like out of place he is in that scene. I know. Isn't, isn't he out of place, Michaela? He is out it's of It's like place. that's purposeful or something. It's almost like Bezlerman actually did something on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> I also love Juliet's mom in this movie. I, I have mixed feelings about her. Sometimes I love her and sometimes I'm like, stop. I mean, you like love to hate her. Yes. Yeah. yeah. She's great. I also love the friar in this movie. I do too. He's less of a devious friar in this than I I mean, he's still devious. And See, I disagree. I don't think he's devious. I I think How is he devious? I think he's kind I of dumb, but he well has good intentions. Yeah, but I don't think he's devious. I think but, he thinks he's going to help. Okay. I think that if he thinks he's going to help, he's an idiot. I, yeah, I didn't say no he's a smart friar. I said <laughs> that he's a well-intentioned friar. Like, mm, I'm going to marry you two in secret. You're obviously too young to get married without your parents' permission. And also, your parents hate each other. But I'm going to do this. You guys go off, have a fun wedding night, mm-hmm. and later on I'll try to explain And to I'm going to give poison to this teenage girl. Yeah. Later on I'll try to explain to your families what I've done, and then I'm going to fake poison a teenage girl. And he would be in prison so, so quick hard today. today. Oh my god. <laughs> so anyway, so maybe he's not tedious, but he is a bumbling idiot, at the very least. Fair enough, yeah. Okay. I like him still. I really, he's one of the ones in that who I do really think has a handle on the language. I would suspect that he's a classical actor because we haven't seen him before. Yeah. So I won, and he, I don't know, he has a seriousness about him that makes me think that he is got- taking this... Very earnestly. He's got gravitas, for sure. Sure does. Mm -hmm. And he can wear a Hawaiian shirt. Actually, a lot of Hawaiian shirts in this. There's tons of Hawaii. So the thing between, like, the two gangs, gangs, I say, but, you know, the two families, they've both kind of got an aesthetic, and the the Capulets are more, they're more, like, almost, like, Latin Catholic, right? So there's a lot of, like, Mother Mary imagery. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of uh, black, green, red, yellow sorts of costuming. The tight, like the leather vests and things mm-hmm. like that. 
the Montagues are almost always in just like Hawaiian shirts over wife beaters. Yeah. That, that's like their aesthetic. They're like beach beach bums. They're beach bums. Yeah. But there's a very like definite line drawn in the, the costuming. Yeah. And I think you get the feeling that maybe Juliet's family is old money. Yes. And his is new money. That would make sense. Yeah, to me. for sure. Mm-hmm. And it um in the movie Montague construction. So yeah, yeah. It sounds like, like he's that towers at uh-huh, the very beginning yeah. that have their names like on top of them. Just yes. one last thing is uh, so with Mercutio when Mercutio uh, has just been stabbed or in this case shot and he's dying. He has this amazing monologue. So good. He says a plague on both your houses. In the movie, he's like screaming at a sky that has like a rolling storm coming in, and it's good screaming. It's screaming. It's that good. Works. That was real. They were filming in Mexico, oh, and, and that, that storm actually? was <gasps> real. No way! I thought that was totally staged. Nope. They had to go back and do some close-up work, but oh, cool. he is screaming at a real storm. So you should at least look it up on YouTube. Oh, it's really cool because it looks really good. I know, and it looks totally intentional. Uh huh. That's awesome. Isn't that fantastic. I did not know that. Yeah. So that is Romeo and Juliet. There are. I'm going to just mention a couple fun things. The movies are definitely, definitely worth checking out. Even West Side Story, which I also like. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's uh, also, there's been over 24 operas, different, separate operas. I'm not shocked. Yeah, made out of Romeo and Juliet. It's also mentioned in the song Fever. Do you know the song Fever? Fever! I like that one. Yeah, anyway, it's mentioned in there, along with Pocahontas and John Smith. So there's some maybe iffy cultural references in there. Mm. But There's also Tristan and Isolde, which is... Yeah, an older... Like a French... It's like the French version. Yeah, basically, yeah. There's also, like, they get mentioned all the time. There's songs by Duke Ellington, The Supremes, The Boss, Tom Waits, Lou Reed, Taylor Swift has a song where she mentions Romeo and Juliet. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is all over pop culture. It's also parodied in its own time, and it's one of the only things that I can think of that was like, in its own time, people were like, we should imitate this. Oh, you're right. It became a trope in its own yeah, era. Yeah, the, the like balcony scene became a thing. Like It was all the rage to put a balcony scene in your play for like years after that. Funny. But, like, yeah, in its own time. I just thought that was kind of cool, because that is such a great like memorable scene well do you know even in midsummer's night dream the play that the ass puts on with his troop in midsummer's night dream nick bottom who gets turned into the donkey head (laughs) uh he puts on a quote-unquote bad play like a badly acted play Mm -hmm. within the play and it's a parody of romeo and juliet oh he's so cool he parodied himself i know that's what we're saying Okay. The Shakespeare guy, huh? Yeah, right? My, we, we should get the word out about him. We should. He's pretty cool. <laughs> I, and I, I feel pretty underground. Like, yeah. we're the first ones yeah. to be on top of this, so. It's a really cool writer. You probably haven't heard of him. little tip for all you library users out there. There's this guy named Shakespeare. Yeah, it's good stuff. Check him out. So this is only the first one. I'm sure will be many episodes that we do yes, about Shakespeare we'll talk about because him a lot. I we're not going to run out anytime soon. Nope. It could probably take it. We could even get into the histories. I mean, I'm sure people would stop listening at that point, but we could do it. All right. And we might. Is that a threat or a, a promise, Michaela? It is both. <laughs> it's right. coming. Well, with that, I want to thank you for listening today. This has been The Book Isn't Necessarily Better, a library podcast. That's my co-host, Michaela. Oh, and this has been my co-host, Roxanne. And we hope you'll join us next time. Some of our favorite insults from Romeo and Juliet. You kissed by the book. He is not the flower of courtesy. 
a plague on both your houses. Wait, you kiss my book isn't an insult? I think it's an insult. It's not. I think it is. No, she's not. It's not. I read No Fear Shakespeare. Oh, please tell us, drop us a line, if you kiss by the book is an insult or a compliment. We need to know. <laughs> Favorite insults from Much Ado. I can see he's not in your good books. This is the messenger. And she replies, no, and if he were, I would burn my library. Ooh, library burn. Library burn. Like the show Lizzie McGuire, they're always like, we'll never be friends again when you don't know Lizzie <laughs> McGuire, do you? There's a literal comedy of errors, which I'm sure <laughs> Which, which I, I would like, I imagine. Which Roxanne, we will never talk about it again on this podcast. I'm already stressed out. <laughs> does play that because he's a minnesotan it's all frivolity and fun i'm ready just hey nani nani the way that is true to yourself oh what are you basing that on nothing (laughs) my my intuition (laughs) like young trust trap young i don't know what word word. it's a hormone (laughs) testosterone testosterone This has been the book isn't necessarily better, a library podcast. I am Michaela. (laughs) (laughs) We're just looking at your name tag. (laughs) And now Roxanne. And I need to go home.